You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. You've got David's pick on uh, air today, and uh, we've got a very special guest on uh Jeff Hill, and we'll be talking about Jeff right after we do what we do always, which is uh, just take a moment out briefly and uh, want to remember all of our brothers and sisters that uh, uh, have, oh, where is it, what I'm looking for, I can't find what I'm looking for, um, the uh, little bit of music in the background, and I can't find that right at the moment. Where where did you go? Anyway, we're going to take just a minute out and um, think about our brothers and sisters that, and we call it Veterans Praying for Veterans. And if you know a veteran that needs prayer, our you are a veteran and need prayer, then we'll take this moment and do exactly that and uh, want everybody to know that we're thinking about you. And uh, we'll start with Jeff in just a couple of minutes. So we'll be back right after this. Thank you, and uh, we want to just think about all of the folks that uh, have given their ultimate and those that are suffering from giving their all in country or wherever it might be. A lot of a lot of our friends are uh, suffering from uh, Agent Orange, and uh, this is what this is all about, is my friend, J. Roy Ritchie, died from uh, effects of Agent Orange, and so many others are finding out they have effects from Agent Orange, even today, 50 years later, or whatever the case might be. So, with that being said, we also do something that uh, I always liked, and it always got me that last half mile, and that's a cadence call. So we'll play one or get one started, and then uh, go into death. Give me some. Give me some. Give me some. P.T. 
Okay, that's enough of that. And uh want to welcome everybody to David's Pick, a veteran show, as a matter of fact. And we've got <laughs> the most interesting guest on, Mr. Jeff Hill. And uh Jeff, uh, next to a dust-off pilot, I would have to say Jeff probably uh, flew the scariest missions around or any place in the world and he was flying a tanker and we're going to get into it and talk to Jeff about flying a tanker and that's like flying around with a match in your hand and holding it next to uh, a thousand pounds of dynamite I think or something but anyway welcome to America's Web Web Radio Jeff. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's an honor to be asked. Thank you. Well, uh, we have a mutual friend, and I like to uh, plug him all the time, and that's Miss, that's Colonel Retired Rick White that is the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you're ever in Atlanta or you live in Atlanta and you haven't been to the Hall of Fame, you got to go. And uh, it'll be quite an experience and quite an awakening for everybody that goes to it so with that being said i was i was uh not kidding at all about i i know that in your tanker business refueling other planes that you all talk in the terms of pounds but i believe that's correct and but i'm just wondering how many when you had a full tank how many gallons was that well, we we uh, at the KC-135A, which is the original, you know, uh, KC-135, the derivative of the uh, Boeing 707. We could carry about thirty-three thousand gallons of uh, jet fuel, and uh, you, if you extend that out, at six and a half pounds a gallon is almost two hundred thousand pounds of fuel. Gee, did. Uh did the 135 have ever have trouble lifting off with that kind of weight? Well, yeah. Uh, for example, on, some, on most of our missions in Southeast Asia, because of the um, the temperature, obviously, and the uh, and the uh, uh, rain that came down uh, on a constant basis, it seemed uh, we had to uh, uh, we had to be careful not to fill up the airplanes uh, to the full, you know. 33,000 gallons uh, because uh, even though the runway was crowned and it would allow the water to run off to the sides, uh, we had to limit our weight uh, because the uh, KC-135 didn't have enough rudder authority to counteract a loss of an engine. Wow. So uh, you could get into a situation where the runway was very wet, you were could be hydroplaning or not and um, <clears throat> uh, if you lost that outboard engine you might have a problem depending on where the wind was on which side of the airplane <laughs> you, you might have, have a problem to keep the airplane straight you know let me ask too did was this an extended runway or was it just a uh, regular well, most of we had to you know I, don't, I can't remember all the details but you had to have at least ten or ten thousand feet of runway to get off with a decent load of fuel. Wow! And how many and, knots? Uh, I believe the uh, where we spent most of our time, and I don't think this is any secret, was uh, at Utapao, Thailand, south of Bangkok, on the Gulf of Siam. 
And I believe, from my memory is correct, it was about a 12,000-foot runway. And you never wanted to see the end of it except in your rearview mirror, correct? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Otherwise, you become a supersonic tricycle and end up in the Gulf of Siam. So you had to be very careful with the takeoff and all the calculations in order to be safe. You know, I, I guess this was just the opposite of my flying experience was that I, I love taking off. And if I ever, you know, I, when I land, it was always, okay, well, this is a controlled crash, you know. And uh, I, I guess you're just the opposite. You'd rather land than take off. Well, the, the takeoff, obviously, is the most dangerous part of the flight, so you're absolutely right. Uh, because that's when you're the heaviest. When when did when did the tanker really uh, join the Air Force as a um, refilling platform for our fighter jets and for many other planes? Really? Uh, well, as I got into the KC-135 right after they were phasing out the KC-97s, the old prop-driven tankers, and it was about the early to mid 60s that uh, the, they introduced the uh, the tanker wow and KC-135 is what I meant excuse me what, what kind of crew did you have well we had uh, two pilots a pilot and a co-pilot and a navigator and a boom operator um, the pilots and the navigator were officers and uh, the boomer was uh, usually a fairly um, level headed E seven maybe E six E seventy eight and uh, essentially the boomer was responsible for anything behind the cockpit. In other words, the loading of the aircraft, and he did all the calculations as to make sure we had the proper um, uh, balance and so on and so forth. So uh, he was kind of like the combination crew chief, boom operator, you know, calculator of the weight and all that kind of stuff. Wow. A lot of responsibility a lot of responsibility for an NCO, huh? Well, yeah, it was crucial. <laughs> uh, you know, he made one ca- one miscalculation on the on the weight and balance and it could put really put you in a bind. Okay, now that's for sure. <laughs> as I've seen, you know, in just pictures, I uh, too chicken to go up in one anyway, nor have I been invited, but uh, as as I've seen the the boomer as you call him, uh, literally was in an open back end. Is that correct? No, it wasn't open. It was a uh, it was a, um, a compartment at the t- very tail end of the airplane where he laid on his stomach, and in front of him were this was a, just a replica of a pilot stick, and he's the guy. And then there was a um, uh, several windows that he could look down at about a forty five degree angle and see the receiver hook up to the boom and he could fly the boom uh, left right up down and then also extend and retract the the boom to make it longer or shorter Hmm. and there was a series of lights along the bottom of the tanker that gave uh, light signals to the receiver in case we were in using techniques that uh, wouldn't allow any uh, conversation over the radio the, the lights would give uh, direction to the uh, receiver, a B-52 or an F-4 or whatever, 
Mystic forward, backwards, up or down. Hmm. So was this uh, the light? Uh, was it basically uh, like the airport, uh, red and green, or? You know, I don't remember. I, <laughs> I, 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 I can't remember. Probably red and green, white. I, who knows? I, I just don't remember. Sorry about that. No, no, no. Uh, so, what was? I, I, you know, I'm still flabbergasted by you all being able to do it. Who uh, did you all refuel at all over? Uh, over uh, populated areas, or did you always try to refuel in unpopulated areas? No, it was uh, we were high enough that uh, we could, you know, maybe even glide, God forbid, uh, out of harm's way. But I don't think there was much um, uh, concern about that. We refueled wherever we had to. Okay, let me ask. You brought up a good good word. What was the biggest concern in uh, refueling? Concern, uh, as far as I was concerned, is missing the re- or missing the receivers, not being able to uh, hook up with them uh, visually, um, and uh, the biggest concern also was refueling in IFR conditions. In other words, instrument yeah. rules. Yeah, and um, it uh, it it could be dicey, particularly if the receiving pilots were fairly new, because it's difficult. Um, I've done both. I've refueled and been refueled. I flew in a fighter squadron, uh, and uh, we did a refueling technique with the uh, tanker uh, using what they call probe and drogue. And that's another system whereby there's a, uh, a, a hose with a conical basket on the end, and the receiver has a, uh, has a probe where he flies his probe into that basket in order to get fuel. That's called the probe and drogue. And most of the refueling was what they call boom refueling, whereby the boom boom operator and the uh, receiving uh, pilot would coordinate their efforts in order to get the boom into the receptacle. The receptacle was probably three or four inches in diameter. Wow. That's... Wow, that's not big. That's that's incredible. Uh, well, the 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 probe and drug, which was the oldest refueling um, systems, uh, that could be problematic, especially in turbulence, because that basket's moving all over the place, and uh, you're and the tendency is to chase it. And once you start to chase it, you get you can get in some some uncontrolled. Um, uh, movements of the receiver, so it's a it'll test your uh, patience. That's for sure. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Jeff Hill right after this. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B, every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion 
on America's Web Radio. Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Okay, and you are listening to America's Web Radio, and we've got Jeff Hill on, and he has to go in with the with my class of uh, heroes. One is the Huey Dustoff pilots, and the men and women that flew the tankers, and uh, I can't imagine two more dangerous jobs than what they did. Um, Jeff, when you were flying the tanker, okay, you were you were saying uh, when they hook up, and uh, why? What were the reasons that you had couldn't have uh, radio reception between the two? Oh, I I, I didn't mean to imply that uh, some, some missions, so uh, very few uh, would require radio silence, depending on. Oh what the strategy was but for the most part there was radio communication because that really eased some of the stress so uh, i'm i'm sure the boomer had radio contact with the uh 105s or whatever were being uh, refueled Uh yes and uh i would assume that would uh did you have a have a situation oh i was going to ask what about what effect did the draft have on it as far as uh Obviously, you're a hell of a lot bigger than uh, an F-105, and so they're in your draft. What Did that have a lot of uh, play with it? Uh, yeah, it did. Uh, the boomer would be the guy to ask more about that because uh, the pilots up front wouldn't uh, have any uh, way to visualize uh, what, how, what the reaction was. But certainly the, you know, uh, the... <laughs> The, the turbulence off the wings and the engines had an effect, and there was a slot in there where you could get comfortable in fairly smooth air okay. at the end of the boom. Once, once the refueling jet is in the boom, now, is, is that a basically locked position, or does that pilot have to continue yeah. to fly? Yeah, that's basically all those, the boom and the, as I recall, the boom and the receptacle were made of case-hardened steel, and uh, it allowed the boomer and the receiving pilot to to uh, disconnect if they had to. And uh, one of the ways they could disconnect would be just to, for the receiver, just to pull his throttle back and slow down, and it just essentially uh, pulled the airplane uh, back and out of, uh, and the boom would come out of the receptacle. Another way would be to uh, for the tanker pilot to accelerate, and it would overpower the, uh, the the mechanism and pull the boom out of the receiving airplane. That's two ways. The third way was, uh, I believe, either the uh, receiving pilot and the boomer had uh, what they call emergency disconnect buttons, which uh, automat- if the button was pushed, then the, the boom would retract. Uh, automatically hmm. so, so uh, basically the boom would be semi-locked into position until there was a what they call a pressure disconnect which would be the deceleration of the receiver or acceleration of the tanker uh, so there were like three or four different ways that, that things could be disconnected 
You know, there's one beautiful thing about this show that that uh, I love every time I do it, and that is I learn more and more. A ground pounder has no idea what what's going on six thousand, twenty thousand feet above him. You know, and uh, that's right. Uh, I just I I'm learning something every time you you say something, and I'm I'm fascinated by it. So when when the fueling is finished. Does the uh, boomer bring the boom back into the plane? Yeah, it, it retracts the you know the extendable part of the boom, and then the boom has a V-shaped uh, aerodynamic uh, little winglets on at the end of it, and that's how he flies that boom. And so it, it can he has the controls, or obviously to disconnect the extendable part of the boom, and then he has the ability to fly the boom back up and lock into the uh, tail of the tanker. Ah. And he can fly it from side to side. So He can fly that boom, literally. So does that affect the plane itself in any way? Uh, not really. Okay. You know, it's, no. I mean, <laughs> you're flying a drone compared to a uh, yeah, an I mean, aircraft it's, carrier. Uh, it's min- it's minuscule uh, effect, uh, at least as far as I remember, sure. And, you know, I would be, uh, I don't want to be uh, doom and gloom by any means, but uh, can you describe some of the uh, incidents you might have had or other incidents that that other tanker pilots might have had? Well, yeah. It caused that chair or that pilot seat to uh, shrink up a little bit. Couple. Uh, there's one mission we had, w- which was uh, flown on uh, uh, January 2nd, 1967, and it was called Operation Bolo, B-O-L-O, uh, Beyond the Lookout. And by the luck of the draw, I guess we were the lead tanker on that mission. And uh, what we did, we have been, uh, we being the fighters, not the tankers fighters were taking a beating from the MiG-21s on their hit-and-run tactics. So there's a very famous guy, fighter pilot named Robin Olds, who, who with his uh, couple, uh, one of my friends, uh, devised a scheme in order to trick the North Vietnamese into thinking that their, their pilot, that the airplanes were F-105s, which were slower and... Um, heavier than the uh, F-4, the Phantoms. So what they did is, uh, if you have any, uh, most people know what a transponder is. It's a signal that signals whatever you want to signal to somebody else who's trying to follow you. So there's transponders that are generic to each type of airplane. So what, what the scheme was, was to take the transponders out of the uh, uh F-105 and replace the F- F-4 uh, transponders. So now the the uh, North Vietnamese, when they would paint the ingress of these fighters from us into North Vietnam, would think that they were F-105s. Well, in their mind, the F-105s were kind of like almost sitting ducks because they were laden so heavy with bombs as they usually were. So uh, with this strategy in mind... We, uh, there were uh, the first part, uh, we were at the point of the spear, so to speak, and we had four F-4s on our wing, and we had 
two other tankers behind us stacked at a thousand foot separation with a mile to mile nose to nose so we had three tankers and 12 fighters so we had this 15 airplane gaggle heading north out of thailand across uh, laos and then uh, we refueled the fighters uh, at almost the exact some of the border area of laos and north vietnam the f-4s uh, think and with the f uh, the north vietnamese thinking they were f f-105s uh, sent their fighters up and uh, the net net result was uh, at the time the north vietnamese had 21 mig-21s and um, so they sent the migs up on their hit and run tactics and uh, we shot down seven migs that day it was the it was the uh, it was a thrilling, thrilling air battle, and although we were not allowed, we being a tanker, were not allowed into North Vietnam or Cambodia, and the, under the threat of court martial, by the way, and um, it was a thrilling day, and it was a great victory for us. And it, the North Vietnamese uh, kind of stood down for a couple months while they licked their wounds in. Uh, were forced to revise their tactics. So that was called Operation Bolo. And that's where uh, we had a, a, a very, very successful day shooting down MiGs. And of course, we were part of it. And so here, uh, we would wait at the border in an, in an orbit and wait for the uh, F-4s to come back. And then we would refuel them on the way back. So we had refuel them up to the North Vietnamese uh, ocean border, let them go, do their thing, shoot down the MiGs, then turn around and come back, and they would find us, and we would refuel them all the way back down to Thailand. So that was a, probably the most thrilling day I've ever been in, involved. I would assume you carried absolutely no armament. That's correct. There was nothing. Uh, As a matter of fact, it kind of reminds me of um, in the last several years, there's been a, some exchange visits of uh, American pilots and North Vietnamese pilots. Hmm. So just recently, a couple of years ago, the North Vietnamese ended up in San Diego. And one of their fighter pilots, is, uh, as I am told, um, is now uh, the head of uh, the president or the CEO of the uh, biggest airline in North Viet in Vietnam, huh? And so, uh, several years ago, we—not uh, me, but uh, my friends—they uh, went to Hanoi and talked to the North Vietnamese and went through the prison and so on and so forth. So, when my one of, one of my good friends was going to Hanoi to visit with his former adversaries, I said, "Ask him." why they didn't come after the tankers. So he came back from North Vietnam here, this was three or four years ago, and said, the answer was, we couldn't get through your fighter cover and we didn't have enough gas. Hmm. So that was interesting and making a lot of sense. Sure. You know, because they'd have to, they'd have to uh, cross swords with our fighter cover in order to get to the tankers. Because the tankers were, and you brought it up, we're sitting ducks. Yeah. Let me, let me ask this, do, to your knowledge, does any other country have tankers like we do? Oh, sure. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Uh, Great Britain, 
Um, oh gosh, that's a good question. But uh, I know there are probably ten or twenty countries uh, that have uh, tankers. Uh, Israel. Uh, How about Russia? Do you know? Well, they have their own version. Yes, sir. Okay. So we're not uh, we're not exclusive in that area, which brings me to another point. When you were going through flight school, um, did the government do like it generally does and says you will, or did you say I choose? Uh, a little bit of both. It was uh, you uh, towards the end of pilot training. Of course, everything was based on your rank in the class. Not your rank as a lieutenant or captain or anything like that. It was your rank in terms of the academics and the flying grades and the physical education. And so um, uh, towards the end of the uh, training in the T-38, um, you fill out a dream sheet and you ranked you know, what you wanted to fly versus what was available, you know, the slots available. Mm-hmm. And then that's how that was done. So uh, and, and I graduated about right in the middle of my class at pilot training and ended up with the tanker. So, and I want to make sure everybody is aware that uh, you are an Air Force Academy graduate, and uh, that obviously had no pull unless you wanted to be a tanker. Well, I, you know, that didn't make any difference. It was it all boiled down to, uh, you know, what was available versus what you wanted. Yeah, and uh, interestingly, I bring up a point was that was really an interesting group of people. Uh, was uh, um, not only did we have American second lieutenants, but we were uh, we had in our class six German pilots or uh, the students. Um, I believe um, three of them were Luftwaffe sergeants because the Germans. Uh, uh, have their enlisted guys flying also. Hmm. Jeff, on, yeah, on that were, note, we're gonna we need to take another break right quick, and uh, okay. we'll be back with Jeff Hill right after this. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, eight to nine a.m. And we had a very interesting doctor's lounge today on a very, very hot topic. So it will be uh, posted in the archives later today, and I suggest that you go to it. It's a politically political hot potato. So I think you'll find the uh, – it was Dr. Hal Shears, who is a pediatric urologist, and it was a fascinating one hour on the doctor's lounge. We'll be back with – Jeff Hill, right after this. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. I had to uh, play the Army promo because I have no Air Force promo. So, But we do encourage on this show, we do encourage uh, kids that are graduating from high school or 
kids that, uh, and I still say kids, but uh, young folks that are graduating from college, if you haven't decided what you want to do with your life, please take a look at the military. It is, one, fascinating. Two, it has every opportunity in the world for you, from flying like Jeff to um, being a truck driver to underwater research. I mean, just the the positions are unlimited and the opportunities are unlimited. And when you show your resume when you get out of the military, you're a step ahead of anybody else trying for the same job because the military has taught you leadership. So please take a look at it. And if you're in Atlanta or you live in Atlanta, go by the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Look up Rick White. He's the director, and he does a super job. And I also want to uh, tout the fact that in my hometown now, uh, Johns Creek, Georgia, we have the Healing Wall that's available 24 hours a day. It's a replica of the Vietnam Wall in New York, or in New York, in uh, Washington, D.C., and it traveled all over the country, and then the J.C. Veterans Association in Johns Creek bought it, and it has a permanent home at Newtown Park. So go by if you have a friend or you lost a family member in Vietnam, you can find them on the wall. So as you were doing your tour in Vietnam, or during Vietnam, did you did you all ever show up and have to dodge any missiles or anything like that? Show up on the enemy radar? Uh, no, uh, well, maybe slightly. Uh, or, or did uh, or did Jane Fonda take a shot at you? Uh, well, that's another story uh, that involves a friend and a classmate of mine, but uh, that can come later. <laughs> um, but to answer your first question. Uh, Yes and no. We we had some missions where we would uh, fly uh, essentially a spy mission in in another kind of a Boeing 707. We got a couple of those, uh, the EC-135, as opposed to the KC-135, EC being electronic reconnaissance. Hmm. And so uh, what they would do is... uh, we would stay pretty much out of harm's way off the coast of North Vietnam to intercept their signals and so on and so forth, their radio uh, chatter. And I was just re- just reminded we were, our fighters were about five, uh, we would usually be covered by four phantoms, you know. And so we had five airplanes, the tank, uh, the, t- the electronic reconnaissance version of the tanker and uh, four F-4s. So anyway, long story short, I happened to, we were traveling north, uh, if you draw a line from the southern part of Hainan Island uh, west into Vietnam, North Vietnam, that's about where we were, maybe 15 miles off the coast of North Vietnam, and we got intercepted by a Chinese MiG, I think it was a 19, uh, I just got very um, briefly, uh, I locked uh, gaze with him. And he was just flying off our wing, just just kind of enjoying the scenery. And I don't know what possessed me. It was really stupid. I gave him the finger. <laughs> and uh, that's not something you want to do. That was really a dumb thing on my part. But And I grabbed the airplane away from the other, from the other pilot and uh, headed south. And, uh, of course, he didn't fire at us because he was Chinese. And at least he had the Chinese markings. But uh, 
that brings up another subject uh, we did know, we do know to this day, that uh, the Russians and the Chinese and the North Koreans were flying missions against us. So, and at the time, I learned to speak Russian uh, at the academy, and uh, once in a while you'd catch something, you know, in Russian. And then uh, later on, after after uh, after the war, I was happened to talk with some guys that were intimately involved in the interception of radio signals, and they got to the point where they could almost tell who the pilot, what the pilot's name was. <laughs> whether he'd be Russian or North Korean or Chinese or whatever. So that was interesting. Oh, yeah. But uh, we also flew reconnaissance uh, along the southern part of China, Hainan Island. That was the island where that Navy airplane about 15 years ago got uh, had forced, forced to land on the island. And uh, the Chinese uh, confiscated the airplane for weeks at a time. Anyway, that was another story. And then also we uh, we flew in a, I flew in another war up over the North Pole. That was uh, Operation, what they called Operation Chrome Dome. And we uh, would um, interact and refuel with the B-52 Doomsday Bombers. And the Doomsday Bombers were the uh, B-52s that orbited the North Pole and if you remember some of the pictures, they had those pointy missiles hanging under their wings near the fuselage. And uh, their job was to pounce on Leningrad and then uh, go obliterate Moscow. Hmm. So that was that deal. And uh, uh, that's a segue into another story I have, at either now or later, uh, that, uh, uh, that involved the fail-safe cuts. And uh, so interesting, it was a different kind of warfare. I, I think if I had my choice of being shot down, whether or North Pole or Vietnam, I'd, I'd choose Vietnam. <laughs> At least warmer. At least warmer, exactly. Let me ask, uh, regarding Alaska and so forth, was, and I just can't remember, and, and Jimmy Stewart's not available to ask, but was that still part of SAC? Yes. Exactly. And they SAC's been dismantled, right? That's correct. But a lot of people don't realize what SAC was. It was Strategic Air Command. It sure was. And that's, uh, we were in the thick of it. Interesting. That's that's very seldom brought up anymore, to my knowledge. And some of those missions, uh, uh, the pilots weren't allowed in the back of the airplane. Hmm. It was the, the the airplane was owned by SAC. Uh, the pilots were SAC, and the back part of the airplane was owned by the Air Force Security Service. And uh, it was so secret they wouldn't let the pilots go into the back into the rear of the airplane. Well, you just can't trust those pilots, can you? That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, exactly. Uh, with that, now that's very interesting. This was okay in the late sixties, basically. Uh, yes, sir. I, I don't remember. I was out by the late 60s, uh, and I kind of missed that whole metamorphosis uh, of SAC into what they call it, what Air Combat Command, I believe it is. Okay, well, when, when, you, were, when you were in and you were flying the ECs, mm-hmm. 
What kind of electronic equipment did you have compared to today? Well, it was pretty bulky. That's for sure. I, you know, uh, there were a lot of uh, a lot of people sitting in chairs with, uh, you know, a station with a you know whole desk full of electronic gear. Hmm. And since we weren't allowed in the back, I I just got just a fair glimpse of it. But uh, okay, so they were actually that you were flying and uh, and they were the ones that were were collecting data, right? Yeah, I've had some of the operators tell me that. We knew who their pilots were, and we could almost discern, like I said earlier, who they were, their names, and where they were from because of the accents. And we had a lot of guys that were really, really savvy with regard to the, um, the, the Vietnamese language, and they knew who was from the south and who was from the north, just like we know, have here in the United States. Wow. You know, my wife is a southern lady, and... There's no doubt about it when you when she opens her mouth. <laughs> you know? So, anyways, the same thing over there, just different language. You know, I had a, a roommate one time that um, was a SEAL, and uh, he was a most interesting guy I've ever met in my life. He's he was a linguist, and I never I I didn't even know that people could do this. But um, he uh, uh, would be dropped off the coast of China and by a sub, swim in, and set up his listening post. And uh, he, could, he could instantly, I've, ne- I've never ever seen anybody like him, but he could, no matter what language it was, within a few minutes he could tell what they were saying. He couldn't speak it. But he could understand it, and uh, I saw him. He demonstrated it to me one time. He didn't speak Spanish, but we went to a restaurant, and within a few minutes, he could tell what the other table was talking about. Why well, he was just wired the right way, I guess. Or that's amazing. Oh yeah, it was just uh, incredible. And then uh, to uh, uh, come back and. Uh, be picked up and, and go back in and make his uh, report, you know, after he had done his thing. But, you know, we, there's so many things that Vietnam brought out. I guess that's a, a decent way to say it. And uh, that, you know, we'll probably never, ever know about some of the things that uh, that happened in Vietnam. Oh, of course. Well, I can tell you one story. Uh, remember, I told you how we, well, I, how we um, got airplanes from the United States to uh, South Vietnam and Thailand was uh, what they call the Pony Express. Right. <laughs> and uh, what we would do is take three tankers, uh, you know, and we start out from the Farallon Islands, which are the islands off the coast of California, San Francisco, and we'd meet twelve fighters coming from a, a base in somewhere in California, usually. And uh, we'd uh, have four fighters per tanker. So we had this fifth, they like 15 airplanes. So, and uh, so we had the three tankers, 12 fighters, on our way to Honolulu, which is about a six-hour and 15-minute flight from the Farallons. 
and uh, land there, stay overnight, refuel. Then the next day we'd take off out of Honolulu and go to Guam, which is about an eight-hour flight. Well, in order to make it with uh, the, the, the reserves you had to have, the third tanker, about halfway across, would offload most of his fuel that he had left and land, uh, well, I think it was at Midway, and uh, refuel and go back to Hawaii. Now we've got two tankers and 12 fighters, so each tanker has six fighters. So it's responsible for refueling six fighters mm. on into Guam. And then once at Guam, overnight, and then the two tankers and the 12 fighters would go on their way to the Clark in the Philippines, Clark Air Force Base, and we we would refuel them as we approached Clark, and we would land at, in the Philippines, and the fighters would continue on to to uh, South Vietnam. And we used to call that the Pony Express. I can understand why. <laughs> you gave them a little gave them a little water to drink before they uh, got to the next station, huh? Did I lose you? No, no oh, okay. uh, somebody's downstairs. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hold on a second. Hello? You still there? I'm still here, yeah. Okay. All righty. Uh, what, uh, what other story would you like to uh, quickly relate to our audience that uh, you probably find or found at the time the most interesting? And w- Wait a second. There, wait a second. There's two things that I always ask veterans. One is that if the country called today, would you go back in? Most definitely. That's the I risk. can still fly. That's. Uh, do you still fly? I, yeah, I can. Uh, yes, if I wanted to. But um, I'm a few months short of being 80 years old. And so I thought, well, you know, it's time. But if... if if it required, I could still fly. The, the and, other question... Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, that's okay. Um, I've flown uh, the tankers also, but I've also flown uh, a dive bomber. So uh, uh, that was the uh, A-37B. It's called... Uh, the, we, it's no longer in the Air Force inventory. It, it was the predecessor of the Warthog, the, you know, the yeah, tank. Yeah, A-10, bus. yeah. Yeah, and what happened is is that the fighter, that little fighter, was very effective and very accurate. You know, you you want to put a bomb in a, in somewhere, and the controller would say, you know, uh, I, you'd ask the controller which side of the roof you want the bomb. <laughs> it was so accurate because it had speed brakes, it had idle, of course, and two jet engines. Then it had a speed brake. And uh, so you could put the airplane easily in a 45-degree dive and be very, very accurate. Well, as it turns out, those airplanes then became really vulnerable to shoulder-fired missiles. Hmm. So we gave them to the South American governments <laughs> to protect their our borders. Right. So it's called the, the Dragonfly, and it was a really nice airplane. It was made by Cessna. Hmm. But uh, as far as anything significant... Yeah, I, there's, I have a couple of those stories I could tell. But the one that really makes sense from a really national viewpoint 
and touches on somewhat a little bit about the political situation is uh, I'd ask people when I give a little talk, I'd ask people, where were you March 7th, 1968? Do you remember where you were? No, sir. Okay. Well, as I told in my previous little story about the, the Pony Express and landing in Honolulu International, that's where I was that day at Honolulu International, or the the military site was called Hickam Air Force Base. Right. And um, <clears throat> we were on the first leg of the Pony Express. Well, that would have been about 1967, 68. I can't remember because I was there several times. Well, it was 1968, March 7, 1968. And we were on our, uh, doing the Pony Express and taking fighters across the pond, pond being the Pacific Ocean. But we would then continue on into Thailand to Utapau, and that's where we'd begin our air refueling combat missions into Laos and South Vietnam and so on and so forth. So, um, 40 years later, I pick up a book called uh, uh, the, uh, it's called The Rogue. <clears throat> Red Star Rogue is the name of the book. It's out of print. You can get it on your reader. It's the story of the attempt by the Russians to launch a nuclear weapon at Honolulu, International, at Honolulu on March 7th, 1968. And this is why I am just terrified, because a rogue launch, you never know. And this is what I'm sure our government is really concerned about. And this rogue launch was cooked up by the former KGB guy named Yuri Andropov. And he was in cahoots with the chief uh, communist, uh, chief uh, communist theoretician, uh, and uh, they came up with this idea that they would um, uh, send the Spetsnaz, which is the uh, the Russian um, special forces, and they had a special uh, forces in the special forces called the ONAS, which were the naval special forces, like our SEALs. They were. They were trained in submarine warfare, and so they boarded the K-129, which was a Soviet submarine. I think it was near Vladivostok, and um, told the captain he had to go on this secret mission post-haste. And uh, off they go into the Pacific Ocean and open the orders, and the orders were to surface the boat 400 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor and launch a 10-kiloton weapon. Well, the normal cruise box for the Soviet submarines were 800 miles northwest of Pearl. Prior to leaving <clears throat> their docking space in Russia, the, the, um, uh, the, the Russian service, the K-129, which was a well, Type 2 submarine, that meant that it could launch a nuke weapon submerged. In the, more, in the friendlier days between the Chinese and the Russians, the Russians gave the Chinese two what they call Type 1 submarines, which meant that they had to surface in order to launch their missile. So here they go, 400 miles northwest of Pearl. They uh, surfaced the boat, and the, obviously the, 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 the strategy was to make the United States think that it was a Chinese boat. 
They wanted to foment a war between the United States and China. So what happened is the uh, Spetsnaz uh, uh, locked the captain and his crew in the forward and aft compartments of the submarine, surfaced the boat, and pushed the buttons to launch the nuke weapon at Honolulu. And it failed. And it failed because they didn't know anything about the fail-safe codes. Hmm. Well, to take a little step backwards, the United States, you remember, I'm sure, it was um, it was the time of mutually assured destruction. Mm-hmm. So it really didn't make any difference who launched first, Russia or the United States, in a nuclear war. So the United States geeks, in other words, the guys that did the hardware and the software for the system of the of the uh, for to launch missiles, and the, um, they gave the Russians the software and the hardware because the Russians were just as much afraid of a rogue launch as we were. So it was a Mexican standoff, so to speak. Hmm. So the United States gave the software and the hardware to the Russians. And for good reason. And so that this whole deal would end up in a standoff. So anyway, here go, here go the, uh, the, the Spetsnaz Onas, lock the captain and his crew in the forward and aft compartments, attempted to launch the missile, didn't know about the fail-safe codes. Well, it, the whole system defaulted to a conventional explosion of one of the warheads in the submarine. It broke the boat in two and sank at 17,000 feet of water. Wow. Well, <clears throat> this has also been all over now. Is recent, this was recently declassified probably eight, ten years ago. I happened to pick up this book that was just amazing to me because guess where I was that day? I was in Honolulu on March the 7th, 1968. Wow. During the Pony Express. Hmm. So I always consider it when I meet somebody who's who's savvy with computers, I'll say, if you're a geek, we love you, because the <laughs> geek saved my life. <laughs> well, okay, there's, uh, we're going to have to uh, start going towards the end, but uh, there is one question, one hardball question that I always yes, ask our, uh, our interviewees and our veterans. And that is, I don't know what organizations you may belong to, veteran organizations, VFW or whatever or whatever, but if you are around other veterans, I ask this question, do you know or have one veteran friend that can only tell one story? No. Once you get them wound up, they keep on going. Exactly. You got it. Exactly. But, uh, you know, and that's the fun part. And I always say, too, that uh, if you're a veteran and you've got kids or grandkids, that, and it doesn't matter which time you served, but get those kids or the grandkids up in your lap and talk to them about your service and why you served. Because now the veteran is the history book. Our history books are deplorable, and they're not telling the full stories. And just like you did, Jeff, 
you told the rest of the story on uh, in on many occasions during this hour. And I, as I said earlier, I always learn something every time we have a veteran on and from a different perspective. And I'm glad to say I was, and I'm also very proud of my son that's a major in the Air Force. But a veteran gets with four or five other veterans, and uh, it's like a needle needling cir- uh, circle for women or something. They just keep on talking, and, and the one-upsmanship becomes so funny that you can't help but laugh as they are telling their stories. And, uh, Jeff, it's been a delight to have you on. Will you come back and tell more about, more tanker stories? Certainly. Good, good. We will... We will both report to uh, Colonel White, I'm sure, at some point during the day. And I want to, again, remind everybody, if you haven't done it, you live in Atlanta or you're coming to Atlanta, go to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. It is a wonderful tour that you take by yourself, go through, look at the pictures, read the stories, and take your kids or grandkids with you and explain what a real hero is all about. And that's what you'll find at the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. It is outstanding. Colonel Rick White, retired, does a absolutely fantastic job. And uh, we want to applaud him. Paul Ingram, that, uh, that started it, uh, is a chaplain. And he's the one that really got the ball to rolling. But... All of them, everybody down there does an outstanding job, and we have to keep our veterans in mind and keep applauding them for what they have done and what they will do, and we certainly applaud all of our military veterans. We have present military and future military that we applaud. So with that being said, we're going to get out of here. Again, Jeff, thank you so much for being on America's Web Radio and David's Pick today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It was was a a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.